0: hey everyone it's alex and ben welcome back to another episode of the oregon bridge podcast
1: old technology is new technology the bully office is very different It is not just a political position, and I would argue it shouldn't be a political position. It should be more of a nonpartisan position. I think that you cannot tax businesses on sales. You have to tax them on profits. There's no reason that we couldn't put more money out of our $87 billion budget into schools. This office can be an office where we talk about opportunities for kids.
0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. We're really excited to have today Sherry Helt, who is joining us from her home in Bend. Sherry is a former state representative in the Bend area. She also served on the Bend Lapine School Board for about nine years, and she is also the owner of a very famous restaurant, which Ben is a big fan of, and I also believe was on the Guy Ferrari Diners and Dives show, if I'm not mistaken as well.
2: Guy Fieri, but yes, Sherry was on
0: (laughs) disastrous, disastrous. But anyway, yeah, we're really excited to have her on the show because she's really the only sort of prominent Republican candidate running for the bully position, which is the labor commissioner. The interesting thing about that race is it is one of the few, uh, it may even be the only nonpartisan statewide race, basically, everybody gets to vote on. So, you know, she is running against two other very competitive candidates, both of them are Democrats. And we do think that she has a very strong chance of moving on, uh, of course, if she doesn't move on, then, you know, she it'll be two Democrats against each other. And this sort of episode will be maybe a little bit relevant. But Ben and I are pretty confident that she is going to move on. So we talk about a lot of, you know, different things on the podcast about the position, as well as a famous Supreme Court ruling, which I had actually sort of forgotten about. I guess it's totally is not actually totally resolved. And, you know, about what, seven years later. So, Ben, what would you think of the episode?
2: Great conversation. Representative Helt is an interesting figure. She's one of the, when she was in the legislature, she was one of the most moderate Republicans serving, which is an interest. you know, her seat was Newt Bueller's seat when he was in the legislature. It was blue, like more Democrats than Republicans at the time she was elected. And since then has just gotten deeper and deeper blue. So anyway, the conversation was was really interesting. I will say, thank goodness, Alex, we're not journalists, because I definitely bring my own personal opinion and personal experience to this conversation when we talk about that Supreme Court decision. People know it as the sweet cakes by Melissa controversy. This was basically what we'll talk about in the episode, but basically it's about LGBT rights and so-called religious freedom. And Sherry Helt is not what I would describe as an extremist on this issue, but she definitely is on the Republican side of of things. She talks about the need to find balance when it comes to religious freedom and the rights of LGBT people. But we have a long conversation that is uh, personal for me, but I think was uh, respectful and hopefully enlightening for listeners. So Alex, anything to add before we dive into the interview?
0: No, I think you, you summed it up nicely, Ben. And yeah, we also, I mean, it's a pretty wide ranging conversation. So I think that folks will enjoy it. The last thing, and very importantly, Buddy will be very happy we're saying this. We are very, very close to our, uh, I guess, initial goal on YouTube subscribers. We literally need like three of you to go and subscribe. So if you type in Oregon bridge podcast on YouTube and you find our channel, Definitely hit subscribe. That would be really helpful to us and you will make Buddy very happy. But as always, thanks for listening. We always appreciate your feedback. We've actually had a lot of people giving feedback on the YouTube videos anyway about the episodes, things they thought were interesting, things they thought that we might've missed. So uh, yeah, we always love to hear what you have to say. So definitely that's a really good avenue to go and do that. But yeah, make sure to hit subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, give us five stars if you can and enjoy the episode. Well, everybody, thank you so much again for tuning in to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. Today, we have Sherry Health. Sherry, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How are you, Alex? Thanks for having me.
0: Good, good. I am in the D.C. swamp actually right now, <laughs> but it's not very swampy because maybe advice for anyone who wants to visit D.C., the only two nice months of the year are May and then October, <laughs> uh, and everything else is basically either hot and terrible or freezing, so... Uh, a little piece of advice to our politically active listeners.
2: We we should ask, uh, we should ask the former representative, where are you coming to us from Central Oregon, I'm guessing?
1: Yeah, I'm in Bend.
2: Okay,
1: I'm in Bend in my home office.
2: Figured, figured.
1: I think that's Uh, one of the things that's kind of fun about Zoom is you get to be invited into people's homes (laughs) where you never have been before. I always try and be in my same space where everyone can find me.
2: I was going to say, Alex, before you ask the first official question, Sherry, over your shoulder, it looks like you have a Ben Bulletin article that you've got matted and framed. What is the, is it about yeah. Zydeco?
1: Yeah. So I don't know what year it was. I can look, it is, I can't see the year. Oh, August 14th, 2007. Okay. And it is a picture, Um, they did this, they used to do this like business owner kind of things, like get to know your local business owners. And we were featured and they came and did professional photos in our house. And it was the first time as business owners, we'd had anything like that happen. And our dogs were kind of hysterical. So they jumped in and like protected (laughs) the kids and like laid on them. And so I don't know if you can see, but the dogs are protecting my little daughter. She was like six years old. She's now in college. So it's kind of fun. But yeah, it was like, and they'd ask fun questions like what's in your refrigerator right now. (laughs) Um, And so we had to answer that. It it was really fun. It was just like kind of a get to know people bulletin article. And then that is above it is um, my engagement photo with my husband. Which when I introduce myself, I won't say that I'm, I've been married for 30 years now, because you can tell by that picture in the hair. <laughs> well, we,
2: will, we will get to politics and policy, but I will say at the outset, you and I, I'm sure disagree on plenty of issues, but the barbecue shrimp at Zydeco is some of the best food you will find in Oregon. I will make that plug. My, my boyfriend won and I went to, that was when we last saw you over the summer, I yeah. think. And it was, I think, his favorite dish he's had since he's moved up to Oregon. So, so kudos on to, to the Zydeco menu. <laughs> I
1: I really like that. Um, common ground amongst the political arena is barbecue Trump. <laughs> Definitely, I'm gonna use that. Thanks, right, Ben. Ben, I didn't say hi to you when Alex said hi. So hi, Ben.
0: <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you too. Great. So sure, you've been involved in different facets of Oregon political life for quite some time. You were a member of a school board, you're a former state representative. Kind of give us a little bit more about your background in terms of why you wanted to get involved in politics and maybe also kind of some of your highlights throughout your political career as well.
1: So for me, this was never um, a political career. It's more of a public servant's career because I have a public servant's heart, I like to say. Um, I'm always trying to do good work and find common ground and move things forward that we can all agree upon. And I started that in the running for school board. The reason that I ran for school board was one of my children had dyslexia and struggled from dyslexia. Her dyslexia was pretty severe, and I didn't like how she wasn't being included. And so I ran for a really important purpose. But the reason I ended up running was because I realized that she wasn't the only one that was struggling. It was other children that were struggling. And I found out that I had a voice of an advocate and that I could really advocate and really explain that they needed to be in the classroom more because back when she was younger and going through elementary school, kids were pulled out of reading to be put in a lower reading. And what we now know is that if you pull a kid out of their normal grade level reading and you don't do a double dose of reading, but yet do you know a small lesser dose, You know, if you're teaching at a kindergarten level, it would take them like 40 years to get up to speed. And so what you need to do is have them be pulled out of a different time, like gym or something fun, and that wasn't, that's not always the favorite idea of kids, but it is the best way to get them ahead and get them caught up, and so those were some of the policies that I went to the school board to advocate for and continue to work on the school board for 10 years. I say work, but I want to be clear that it is a non-paid position of love. And it was just an honor and a pleasure to work with our teachers, our staff, our bus drivers, our administrators, our students, and our parents, and really bring forward really good change. During that time, my time on school board, we were able to increase graduation rates by 10%. And that required having a school board that worked together in a, a really nonpartisan way, in a way that really worked for all kids. And so, you know, you see school boards have become a lot more controversial, but back then we were just really had a great school board and I was honored and privileged to work with all of them. And we did a really great job. And then that led into running for the legislature. And then that now has, I've sort of decided that I have these great skills that I've built by being on the school board for 10 years. And then, not only being on the school board, but then being in the legislature. And then I've also owned a business for 18 years with my husband. And so we've employed at the high point of our, at our employment level was 104 people in our restaurants. And that was before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, we were closed overnight, lost 90% of our sales and went from 104 employees to 12. And so All of that experience combined of the regulatory land that businesses lived in, the state legislature and the school board really dovetail very nicely inside of the Bully office because the Bully office is very different. It is not just a political position, and I would argue it shouldn't be a political position. It should be more of a nonpartisan position and a position that is you know, common ground, pragmatic, really transparent and doing its job, but it needs someone that knows how to run an office of $35 million budget, knows someone that can have an office of 130 staff members. That's a lot of staff members. And so, and also know state policy. And then with the apprenticeship part of the position, you have you know, the school board knowledge and the career and technical education that we all as a board fought for to keep and make sure that our kids were doing hands-on learning as well.
2: So before we jump into the, the bully position and in, in the race, I did want to ask you about your service in the legislature. So for listeners, you, you represented Bend, the seat that was previously held by then-Representative Newt Bueller. You both sort of were, you can correct me if you disagree, but I I saw you both as sort of from a similar place in the Republican Party on the more moderate side, sort of someone that tried to work across the aisle and work in a bipartisan effort. And so I wanted to ask you about your experience as a moderate Republican, because a couple of the most high profile issues were when the different sides for different reasons were upset at you. So one of them was Democrats thought that you were the most likely Republican vote for the Student Success Act, which you voted against. And I think Republicans were upset at you for voting for the vaccine bill, which you voted for. So how did you how did you navigate being in that space where you're kind of in between two folks who at varying times are going to want you to do things that you might not be likely to do? What was that experience like?
1: Wow, that was a long question. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm known for this.
2: I need I need to narrow it down. But the good thing about podcasts is you have as long as you want to answer it.
1: Yeah, I just feel like my answers go really long like the last one. Okay, so this is going to be a long answer. Just a warning. I'll put a like disclaimer out for that. Okay, so I did replace Newt Bueller in the legislature. And when he ran for governor, he asked me to run for his seat. And I was very honored that he asked me that. And I was very honored to run for that and honored... You know, that was one of the greatest honors of my life is to serve in the legislature. And better. that was a,
2: a blue-leaning seat, right? There were more Democrats than Republicans when you ran the first time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay.
1: Yeah, so... um It was very fun, and I enjoyed that a lot. And Newt is a dear friend, and I am honored to be compared to him. I don't know that I fill his shoes. I'm not running for governor. I'm running for a lesser-known office that is statewide. So, I mean, maybe I have little shoes of his. But I think that he has such a public servant's heart, and I think you touched on that, too, is that we really want to work well and do things that really bring us together. And so I think that's one of the things that joins us. And then, you know, I think when I was in the legislature, I'm not sure why people thought that I would vote for the Student Success Act, because that was a really awful tax. And I'm a business person. And I'm on school board, I was. And I think that you cannot tax businesses on sales you have to tax them on profits. And I find that a fundamental flaw in that tax. And I can tell you that it has been very hurtful over the pandemic because as people built up sales from the first quarter of the year, they were then taxed on that tax while their businesses were closed. And so I support that vote wholeheartedly. Um, And then I was very disappointed in, the fact that we also had enough money to put the money in the schools that's a priority issue and i find that to be a leadership issue that's one of my issues with where we're at
2: clarifying question you said we yeah. had we had enough money do you mean that the state already was collecting enough money to pay for the student success act
1: yeah well we there's no reason that we couldn't put more money out of our you know 87 billion dollar budget into schools right oh so
2: you're saying cut other places in the budget basically yeah i see
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you can't have everything you want when you have a budget and I want good schools. And I think that we had the money in, in the coffers to put into schools. I mean, even as we've continued along, you've seen schools um, get things cut. So they cut $400 million from the budget last year from schools, which was the same amount that the cat tax was supposed to be. So that sort of looks like a shell game to me, but now you have businesses paying on sales versus profits. So it's a fundamental issue for me that I think we should prioritize schools. I think we should prioritize school funding. And that's what I went there to do. But of course, being in the super minority, you don't have a voice other than to say, no, that's not the way that it should be done. And that's not what I support. I do support putting a lot more funding into the school's budget but not from an additional tax. I don't think we needed that tax. So that's why I voted against that tax.
2: What about the uh, the vaccine, the, the very high profile vaccine bill that you voted for?
1: Yeah, so um, vaccines, I think, are very interesting territory at the moment because we've had a lot of issues. At that point, we had had a measles outbreak and really wanted to make sure that we were... Getting kids into their doctors and moving the vaccine exemptions from counties into your doctor's office so that you could talk to the right people and make sure that we were getting kids vaccinated in that way and having them speak with their doctors and having doctors in charge of that. I thought that was a very, you know, that bill was good and that's why I stood behind it. However, right now, we have vaccine mandates that have went into place in our businesses, which have been overturned by the Supreme Court. And that's really, you know, vaccines aren't going to impact this office at all um, because of the fact that this office doesn't make laws, bring laws, it interprets laws, right? And so, one of the things that i want to be clear on is that the the Bowley office is about business and labor it's not about vaccines and it, you can't do that you have to bring forward you know in the same way that it's not about voting or on schools and their funding this office is specific to the laws that you will uphold and what you do is look towards the supreme court and so when you're looking for workforce, you're gonna, you know, I would look towards the Supreme Court where they have not upheld vaccine mandates for the COVID vaccine inside of the workforce that was put into place by Biden, but yet overturned.
2: Got it. And so you does just, that make
1: sense? I know this, that was a long answer.
2: No, no, no. That's that's fine. Uh, we are very much into long form. One quick question before Alex transitions us to policy, and this is something I don't understand. F- fully so maybe you can explain it because you're right so bully the bureau of labor and industries is not just like a traditional state agency there's like a quasi-judicial function where you're sort of you're you're the arbiter of complaints Mm -hmm. basically can you explain that function of bully and the role of the commissioner
1: so bully's a very interesting office and i think that this is super important for people to understand it's one of our only statewide elected state agency heads and it's it's elected because it has to oversee all of the civil rights cases for it, all employees which means government employees as well so you couldn't have the government appointing you know like the governor or the senate appointing the person that would oversee the civil rights violations for employees because they have employees themselves and so what you've seen in the capital is there has been There was a lot of lawsuits, a lot of money spent in settling those lawsuits for sexual harassment inside of the Capitol. And Bowley is supposed to have put in place an office and overseen that there's an office that is upholding civil rights inside of the Capitol. And Bowley has failed at doing that. And so that needs to be put in place and upheld immediately. And whoever... I'm hoping to be the next bully commissioner, but what needs to happen is a meeting with the Speaker of the House, the Senate, the new Senate president, and the new governor and have an office put in place that's upholding civil rights for the people that are working in the Capitol and making sure that that's done because that contract was made and has been not fulfilled.
2: I just want to make sure I understand. So part of the initial bully decision was to create an office-specific specific yeah. to the state legislature to handle mm-hmm. alleged civil rights complaints or violations, and that has not happened yet.
1: Well, they sort of put it in place, but it hasn't worked because there's a couple lawsuits of the people that have run that
2: office. Oh, I see. I think the position was legislative equity officer. Then yep. this is where, you know, the former person is now suing legislative leaders. Yep. And Okay, okay, got it.
1: And then there was another person before that that resigned because it wasn't able to be done to fruition. So that needs to be worked out. Got it. So that position, so the bully position is elected for that reason, to oversee all employees and all civil rights cases so that nobody has, you know, their thumb on the scales, so to say.
0: Yeah, no, that's, uh, as I was going to say, there's there's a lot of lawsuits to follow and to track there. So (laughs) glad you're able to stay on top of it. Great. But yeah, so I want to transition us over to policy and kind of talk about some of your different priorities. So one thing that I had seen on your website, which I thought was interesting, was basically, and I'm, I might be making up the language here a little bit, I'm paraphrasing, but it essentially was referring to helping to move high school graduates into high-skilled jobs without kind of having to follow the traditional, or what some might say, the traditional high school to college to career route basically after that. I feel like this is something that we hear folks talk about from both parties right is that there's you know i mean we had commissioner hoyle on the podcast before and she talked about this and i know that she had helped to roll out an apprenticeship program before that sort of sounded like it was at least a little bit in this vein but kind of if you were to to you know win the election and become become the next commissioner what would your sort of vision be to kind of setting up those different apprenticeship programs helping to create those pipelines and kind of managing that program from uh you know the executive perspective
1: Yes, so I have a whole plan. This is like my most exciting thing. This is what uh, makes me a complete nerd. But this goes back to my school board experience. So when we talked about school board, we talked about career and technical education. While I was on the school board, I was also on Oregon School Board Association Board. And we worked very hard as an association and the board of the association and all across the state with many different partners to bring forward an effort to secure funding for career and technical education. That was called Measure 98. And Measure 98 got put in place, and we now have the funds to ensure that we can have these career and technical education classes. Well, that's all well and good, but if we don't continue the process to the high-wage skilled paying jobs, we are not utilizing that correctly, right? So what I want to do is really work with our high schools and our future centers in our high schools specifically to make sure that they have all of the information about what is available. And then on top of that, continuing to make the access greater for the apprenticeships and the skilled programs that are available. So on the job training, other things like that, like certificate programs and making sure this is all available. So when you go into your career center, I don't want you to go in and have someone be able to tell you that this is how you get to college. Here's the application. Here's the funding application. You know, if you need help funding your college application and here's who you call, here's the counselor. That's great. We do that really well, right? That's already being done. But what we don't do is it's sort of a mystery. If you want to be a plumber, you want to be an electrician, you want to learn how to build chips, you know, at, you know, Intel or other chip makers across the state, no one is going to say, Here's the application. This is how long it takes. This is how much it's going to cost. This is how you get funding. And so what I want to do is really build the infrastructure around that so that our kids are getting that from the moment that they walk into there, right? And even while they're in their CTE programs, giving them ideas about what skills and jobs you could use with this. And some of that's being done, but it's islands of excellence. It's not everywhere. And so what we need to do is make sure we have access. If you want to be an electrician in Bend, you've got to go to Portland to make sure that you finish your training there while you're doing your, you know, journeyman's Mm -hmm. here. That's really difficult for a lot of kids. And it depends on how much money you have to be able to do that, especially with workforce housing, and we all know how much we're missing all of that. And so I think having programs accessible across the state is going to be an important thing to break down barriers, making sure people have the prerequisites when they walk into the classes in the of Moro. We just passed, the legislature just passed a million and a half dollars going into there to be able to have kids finish their prerequisite classes that's going to be really important. So finding what all these barriers are to get kids and adults as well from high school to a high wage skilled job. And so we can expand that out into healthcare, which I think we should do during the pandemic. And even today, we have so many nurses that we are short and you see it all over the place that it's it's really difficult putting a lot of stress on them and making sure that we have some apprenticeships that we can get approved to help out that shortage and help those nurses out so that they're not overburdened and overworked. So it's really important. And I really think that we can build this tremendous pipeline or bridge, whatever you want to call it, from high school. And then also for adults. This weekend, I went out to Baker Technical Institute, and they have CAT, training machines for excavation machines. And these are simulators and they're running about $60,000 a piece. They have five of them inside a trailer that they drive around the state and give people their certificates for training them on heavy equipment. And they do 80% of the training on the simulators and then 20% After you're well trained, you can do it on the heavy equipment itself and programs like this are exactly what we need to make sure our workforce is meeting our workforce demands and I really think we can increase our wages for everybody coming out of high school. Because everybody coming out of high school should be meeting in that career center and have a path and be told how much what they want to do costs, how long it's going to take them and where they need to be to do it. And and we can get them there. And then also the adults that want to be retrained, we can do as well.
0: It's really interesting. And I I do have one question and I'm thankful to have two school board members here as well. So I went to Westland High School, very good high school. I know it's one of the best in the States and we offered a lot of advanced placement classes, different languages, things like that. But there, I know I had friends who went to other schools in the area where they got to take classes like wood shop and things like that. I think there was another high school locally, that even had a class on like, how do you repair a car? Like, what are the things that go into that? And obviously, I think one that, as you said, can kind of, I mean, first of all, it drives interest, but then two, that could turn into a real career, right? I did well in this class, you know, now I want to go on, I want to pursue this. And a lot of those jobs, you know, they pay pretty well with taking on limited amount of debt is kind of, what is the power dynamic there between kind of the labor commissioner and the programs you'd want to put forward to, but then also the school boards, right? Because it doesn't really seem like there's consistent programming across the state, right? I mean, my high school was, again, very different than the ones near to me. And I imagine that the high schools that are in, you know, either more urban areas that are poor or more rural areas that are poor also just kind of offer less programs in general. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit? And, you know, what do you kind of think should be done to maybe fill the gap there?
1: So that is a really good point. In in our town, I'll speak to our, we had five high schools when I was on school board. And they still have five high schools, uh, disclaimer, but the programs that we put in place were different in each place. And we did that by design. And sometimes people found that frustrating. They'd be like, oh, we want culinary here. And we're like, no, you have culinary at Mountain View. But each one of these career and technical education programs costs around $500,000 for the equipment to put into place. And then the materials are expensive and the upkeep on the equipment. And getting skilled teachers in those professions is really difficult as well. And so what we wanted to do was have different options. And so I think that's one of the things that's really important around open enrollment to make sure that you can go to different districts to utilize the different programs that are in your area. And what we put in place to make sure that there was an equalizer was a bus route. From one school to the other schools, so that if you wanted culinary, you could go to that one school. But that meant we didn't have to just put culinary. Because if we put culinary, we had 12 different programs. We would have had probably three of the same programs at all of the same high schools. So, what you really want, and this is what I found, is options on the school board, we wanted to really instill options around that everybody could access. And it's not as convenient. I will agree that if you can walk to your school and get the program that you want. But my son was one of those kids that opted to a different high school and did a welding program and got his welding certificate through the program. And I believe that that was it was fine. You know, he had to switch. It was a little bit of work to switch him. It was a little bit of work to have him make new friends, but he really liked that path and he liked that that opportunity was available. So I think open enrollment is one of the things that you want to make sure for kids that they have access. But if you can have a path to talk about, you know, these, it, one of the things I think that you're sort of getting at is this office can be an office where we talk about opportunities for kids, where we take away some of the stigma of going into a trade job, where we really start talking about how great that is and how great of an opportunity is and how you're really access to high wages immediately upon graduation of or finishing your certificate, you know, graduation of the program or the certificate. And it's really important that we, are embracing that and even in your high school where you focused more on languages if we made sure that when you're going into that career center that we're able to say, hey, if you want to be a plumber and you want to be an electrician or you want to be in healthcare, or you want to be in culinary, here's some of the options for you that are out there. If you want to go to community college and be a dental hygienist or more certificate type programs, these are available and this is where you access them. And so I think getting that information out there and really getting the money to make sure that kids have the ability to get all of their prerequisites and talking about that. So in your high school, maybe language wouldn't be what you take, but you want to get this math that makes sure that, you know, angles and, you know, geometry really well for whatever you're going into for construction trade or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's really interesting. And uh, you actually queued me up for my last question perfectly before I hand it back over to Ben. Uh, I want to, get your take on kind of jobs of the future. And what I mean by that is I think, uh, you know, and I'm not saying this is just Democrats or even Republicans. I think this is kind of just more of a generic education thing, but people talk about jobs of the future all the time, right? Like we need to be preparing our kids, our workforce, et cetera, for the jobs of tomorrow. That kind of doesn't mean anything because that's like such a, I mean, that's literally all of the economy, but I think when a lot of people hear that they think, oh, we need to start teaching kids to code and they need to start having better computer skills and things like that. But I think even as I work in the technology industry, even as technology is evolving, we're actually automating a lot of jobs where you used to have developers before who used to have to write code. And that market is sort of changing as well. It's obviously very difficult for the private sector to keep up with change, right? That's how new businesses come. That's how old businesses die. It's even more difficult for government to have to do that, which is just a slower and bigger moving beast in general. I'm just kind of curious. And obviously this is a big question, so you can riff on it how you like, but Kind of how you would want to position the agency to kind of what you see as like the core areas where Oregon specifically you think there's like good opportunity for job growth, either on the high skilled front or even the low skilled front. So just kind of curious if you'd answer that
1: one. Okay. So I'm going to give you um, this is going to be co- kind of a little bit of a long answer, but old technology is new technology. So when I was on the foundation of Education Foundation for the Ben schools, we would fund grants and This one teacher wanted to fund grants to buy all of the kids unicycles. And we were all about getting new technology into classrooms, you know, with smart boards and iPads and iPods. This is very old. You know, this is probably 12 years ago. And one of my friends who is really a high tech business owner Said to me, Old technology is new technology. And I said, Well, what do you mean? And he said, Well, if you want kids to learn, you've got to go backwards sometimes, too, where the unicycles are the new technology, like teaching them balance and being out there and learning this is a skill that will help them with all of their education. And so don't be afraid of using old technology as new technology. One of the jobs of the future, I believe, is our skilled. Jobs that we have not filled. So, our pipe fitters, for instance, are in their late 50s. We need pipe fitters. We are, especially like in the Bend area, we have 26 breweries, I think, maybe more. I mean, I haven't looked in a week, so maybe it's 27 or eight by now. But you need pipe fitters to make a brewery. So, if all these people retire, What are we going to be left with? Working with your hands and doing a skilled, you know, trade job is going to be a very good job of the future because we don't have enough people that are going into that. And I think that we need to work with our kids in these career and technical education programs to really make them realize that old technology is new technology and it's really cool. You can. Now you can, you know, you may be an electrician, but now you're doing high fiber too, instead of just electricity, right? And so there's a lot of things that that can be um, moved into the future, but they still are the traditional way of living and way of, of jobs. Now, with that being said, there's also... New jobs that are being made and created, and we have to make sure that we have apprenticeship programs on the job job training programs for those as well. And that would be our chip makers. And so you've seen that we have um, one of our large manufacturers is wanting to hire 10,000 people to build chips at $135,000 a year. That's a big deal. And we need to make sure we have that workforce because those are the dollars. We talked about dollars and we talked about not raising taxes. If you can capture all those jobs in the state of Oregon and not let them go to, you know, Ohio, per se, then we could really make sure our schools are as good as they can be. Funding comes from having a good economy and recognizing the new jobs that we're are needed. So we can do it twofold. Old technology can be new technology with making sure we bring back those skilled high wage trade jobs that have been sort of going unfilled for the last decade or so. And then we can also start making sure that we're bringing up the new programs that are coming and fulfilling those jobs as well, so that we're able to make sure that we're getting that tax base for all of the schools in our state and making sure that we have schools that can continue to um, improve and and make sure that we are educating our students in a great way, and so I think this is all sort of centered on making sure that workforce meets our workforce demands and meeting with the businesses and setting up like in my ideal world, I'd love to set up a dashboard for Bully, And so that's one of my goals for myself is making sure that we can take what kind of jobs are there meeting with business, say, what do you need? Like, there's no mystery in this. Let's all meet. Let's Set up what you need and set up a dashboard of how many people you need, where they're needed on a map, and let's start making sure that we have access to training, make sure that everybody knows what those are, what those jobs are paying, and we can get them filled. I mean, I think we take the mystery out of it.
2: Well, and to that point, I think that when Alex, you asked about the school board question you know, sometimes school boards, as a school board member, we're trying to do the best we can, but school board members don't have the best, most up-to-date data about what the workforce needs of the next 10 years are. So if BOLI could serve as a place that can help people make decisions, say, hey, in Washington County, you're going to need a bunch of plumbers in the next 15 years, let's start the pipeline. I think those kinds of, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm relieved that you didn't say that unicyclists were a job of the future, because that was going to be pretty confusing <laughs> if you went there. I will also say our producer, buddy, Terry is going to be furious with me because I'm having work done on my house right now. So I apologize if hammering comes through as I'm talking.
1: I can't Um, hear hammering.
2: Okay, good. But I would, yeah, like I, I just bought my first house last year.
1: Congratulations.
2: Thank you. And it was very much a situation of like the only home I could afford was like the worst home in the neighborhood. So a lot of work has been done, but really challenging to find plumbers, electricians, contractors, mm-hmm. um, skilled trades. So that resonates strongly with me. I got a couple of bully questions I want to ask about. One, so something that Commissioner Hoyle brought up and that I've heard Casey Kula talks about this on the campaign trail sometimes is bully staffing levels and how relative to where bully was staffed a decade or two decades ago, and the size of the of Oregon's population, and the workforce, and the number of complaints coming in, that there's the perception that Bully is severely understaffed and not staffed adequately to meet the needs of both employers and employees across the state. I'm curious what you think about that. Do you th- would you advocate to the legislature to give more funding to BOLI to to bulk up its its own workforce, or how do you think about the Bully's workforce challenges?
1: Well, I think it's very interesting that that before people even get to the office, they think it's understaffed and needs more funds. Um, so I think what you have to do is the first, on day one, I want to do an audit, an internal audit, um, and also ask the Secretary of State to do an external audit. Because then we can look at where our successes and where our failures are. Um, and then two, meet with the second thing, meet with every single staff member and see where they think we're doing good, where they think we're falling down, and what kind of tools they need. Because a lot of this, I believe, I don't know, you don't have to look too far in the state of Oregon to see that every outdated computer in the state seems to be here and working in a state agency. Um, Every single agency that we've looked at that has had a failure in the newspapers um, over the last few years has been their technology. Um, When I was in the state legislature and met with the director for the employment department and was told that we couldn't waive the waiting week to get the people money faster because we were programming in cobalt, I almost fell off of my chair because that's from like 1984. Um, and so I think a lot of this would probably be updating a computer system, updating the way we do our workforce. One of the things when you look at Bully's website right now, it will say, basically, be patient. We have a backlog of unassigned cases. Yes. But why, why are we having a backlog before we get them assigned? There's a certain amount of people that work in the office that do the cases and I'm sure they have expertise, right? In which types of cases they work on, why can't you get them assigned and then figure out how to get those cases faster and help more? Um, And so I think that having an efficient computer system that even just assigns the cases to the people um, may be one of the answers to helping at least getting them assigned. And I think that you also have to look at what do we want to prioritize and how does that look? If we want to create this pathway um, to our schools, which I believe that we do, we're going to have to probably be shifting a little bit of what we do. Is Bully going to just be an office where we are, um, you know, having it be focused on on just, you know, um, the issues that are wrong, or are we going to put money into opportunities as well? And so, how do we how do we make a balance of that? But I think that comes from getting an audit, finding your strengths, finding your weaknesses, getting a new computer system. I'm just going out on a limb there with that, and also really getting a little bit more assistance from technology. You know, how can we, how could technology assist us in getting some of these cases done faster? And, you know, when you look at the 80s, um, which I think is where they're getting those statistics of having double the amount of workers, we didn't have computers. I mean, you are still having ribbons for your typewriter to like touch the buttons. I mean, there's a lot of efficiencies that we can make and finish um, quickly. And, and I think that we can really do a lot better job. I mean, a $35 million budget um, that I don't have to beg anyone for uh, sounds like a great idea to me to be able to get a lot of opportunity um, sent out to our students and our adults that want to be trained in these jobs and working with our businesses. And I think I would take a lot of work on myself. Um, I work really hard and I like to dig in and I like to get stuff done. And so working side by side with all of the people there, I think we can make a lot of change.
2: So one more bully question, then we'll do some a couple of quick politics questions. Mm-hmm. Probably the most high-profile bully issue over the last decade has been the su- sweet cakes by Melissa decision, which l- listeners probably remember this, but it was it was essentially there's a lot of details that actually matter a lot in this case. Um, mm-hmm. so even summarizing it is somewhat problematic. But essentially there's a lesbian couple who went to a bakery um, to have a wedding cake created. When the when the bakery owners discovered that it was for a same-sex wedding, they said that they didn't feel comfortable making the cake. Um, they complained to bully. The bully commissioner at the time, Brad Avakian, found that it was discrimination, violated Oregon law, and levied a really significant fine against the bakery owners. Um, And then I think since then, there was a a judicial decision. I can't remember which court it was that basically said your finding was correct, that it was discrimination, but the way in which you levied the fine and perhaps the amount of the fine was considered an overreach or an overstep. So I think they're in the process of like recalibrating how they decide what the next steps are. Um, But as someone who was kind of on the outside with everyone else, reading the newspaper articles and listening to interviews from the people involved, Um, Would you have handled that situation differently if you were the bully commissioner at the time? And if so, how would you have navigated that?
1: Yeah. So I think that's one of our most embarrassing moments from the bully office that went to the U S Supreme court. Um, First of all, I would as bully commissioner try really hard to make sure nothing I do ends up in the U S Supreme court. I think that's a very, very bad precedent. Um, And they, they, they said that the fine was egregious and that the fine had to be reworked. And so that's still in the process nine years later of being reworked um, and will probably be decided by the next commissioner. The other thing that they said is that they um, did not um, find in any way on religious freedoms, which we have very strong precedent for in Oregon. And so they sent it back to the 12th Circuit Court to weigh in on the religious freedoms. So there is a lot to be done on that case still. Um, I think what that case teaches me is that you have to go from case precedent when you are deciding this. You you can't go from, you know, this isn't an office that is is going to be where you can just shift what you want to shift. You have to follow the law. You have to follow the, the cases that have put, been put in place. And you have to be fair and and open-minded on any fines that are brought forward. And so I think that we have a lot of work to do on this case still, unfortunately, and it's nine years later. But one of the things that I also think is that Brad Avakian was very, um, he ran for multiple offices during this office. This is an office that needs a leader, someone that wants to work hard in it, that wants to do the job, that wants to get this agency back up and running in the right direction. Um, and and that's what I want to do.
2: Qu- quick follow up on that. I didn't realize that the next bully commissioner would likely be making the decision. That it has been a long time <laughs> since this started. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned, and I think that's correct, right, To to use case law, use statute to make the decision. So based on your understanding of statute and case law in Oregon, would you agree that a business owner does not have a right to refuse to give service to an LGBT couple? Or do you think that's more of an open question?
1: Well, it's both. So it it goes on both sides. So it's not there's a religious discrimination, but there's also a discrimination against their sexual orientation. And so both of those have case precedent. And so that's why you have to really dig into the law and uphold the law on the case precedence. And so what they said was essentially that the discriminatory case towards the couple was, was sort of correct, but they ignored the business owners um, portion where their religious freedom lies. And so that's why the 12th circuit court has to figure that out. Um, so that wouldn't be bully anymore. That's going to be your 12th circuit court um, because that is a very complicated issue, but you do have to follow case law and case precedent and not make this a, a political decision, right? It has to be a legal court upheld decision. And what you don't want to see is Oregon making national news on Supreme Court and having big fines and not getting this correct. And so I would really work very hard to make sure that we're hitting the right messaging on what the law and the case precedent says. And so you have to find that balance. And that's really, really important where you find where you have two sides that are both have precedent. Um, and that's really important
2: and well, difficult. Yeah, I, I will just say before Alex, tran- and, and transitions to politics, this is a tough one for me personally, um, obviously because of my sexual orientation, the mm-hmm. idea like, cause I understand the, the position of um, religious freedom and not wanting to have mm-hmm. your religion be discriminated against because of your religious beliefs. But I also can't imagine a world where like you could, I could walk into a certain store and they'd, once they found out, if I walked in with my partner or holding hands with my partner, they'd say, well, it's against our religious beliefs to serve you. And it's just, you know, I, I our friend Marshall Kozloff, um, who Alex and I have been friends with for a long time, he's got a podcast where I used to debate this with him, like, where is the line? Is a floral arrangement art um, an expression of creativity, expression of religion? Is a bakery, does that qualify? What about the caterer for a wedding? Um, you know, like, it is just such a, and some of these things, to your point, um, Sherry, is like, the case law and the the statute might not be cl- really clear about some of the the areas that are on the margins, about like where one right ends and another begins. So it's a tough one, and I I think we've assumed that that the it's been a a, um, a decided fact in Oregon for a while because we've been relatively democratically controlled, and we've had um, you know people like Brad and as Bully Commissioner people like Tina Kotek as speaker, but it does seem like in the next few years, this could be a new area of political debate where where people are making cases, um, particularly if, if the circuit court comes back and says, well, actually the freedom to religious expression does include um, baking a cake or floral arrangements or, or whatever. Um, it seems like this might be a new front in. I hate to call it a culture war because I hope it doesn't devolve into that, but it might be a new front. So I don't know. Any thoughts on out from Alex or Sherry before we transmit? This is kind of politics anyway. We're kind of in the politics section.
0: You you stole my mojo, Ben. Let's <laughs> see about politics next. Uh yeah, I mean, obviously with the recent uh, I guess not the recent decision, but the recent. don't know what the decision yet uh, which of course then some sort of decision will come out and then this is all wrong what i'm saying uh yeah i think those issues are so much more back into the limelight i mean i just don't necessarily see republicans though across the state necessarily prioritizing them uh i think it's much different if you're in a place right like texas alabama wisconsin even even like swing states but are kind of more in the rust belt area but uh, i don't personally feel like those will kind of come up in oregon but i don't know i could be wrong Uh, but so moving on back, but I would, I want to,
1: I want to do, I want to do answer that. So I think when you're talking about bully office, remember that we have to follow the law. Like it is very, it's not, it's not ours to interpret. We have to make sure that we're upholding those case standards. And, and when you're leaning towards the Supreme court and they're saying, you can't ignore this and you can't ignore this, you have to find the right balance. I think you have to find a balance. And I think that's what we need is to make sure that we're not, you know, giving fines that they say are absolutely way too far. Um, and they shot down that fine, but we also need to find a balance where we're supporting people. Right. And so as a business owner, I am very open as a business owner. I would never not serve somebody. I would never not do that. And so I don't think that that is um, where I'm coming from. And I want to be clear on that. It's that's, those are not my personal feelings, but that's not about my personal feelings at that point. Right. It's about making sure that you can uphold the law and find that balance. And this case, obviously hasn't found balance because it's still going on after nine years. And so it's a very difficult case. But I want to be clear that I support our LGBTQ community and always have and always will. Um, And so as a person, and that is upholding all the discrimination cases that come in into the office and and finding them in case law where you are ruling on them and making sure you're finding that space. And so I don't think that it should be um, polarized to one side or the other, but really uphold all of the case law that is there, if that makes sense. Does that make sense, Ben?
2: It does make sense. And I uh, you know, we we may disagree on this, but I will say there are a lot of Republicans who wouldn't even go so far as to say that they personally support LGBT rights. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate your your statement on that. Um and it is, it's gonna, it's some of the like to Alex's point, like these are gonna be polarizing issues. Abortion is going to be a polarizing issue where people disagree. Um, I, I cannot see for me personally, I can't see a place of This might sound bad, like, because I do try to be collaborative and and try to find a middle ground, but I can't imagine personally feeling like a situation where a, a person's religious beliefs were able to trump my ability to access goods in a marketplace, for example, because of my sexual orientation. So it's one of those where. Like, is it I wonder if it's resolvable, frankly, like like or, or are there some issues that are just, frankly, too large or too divisive to be resolved? And the lawsuits continue, you know, legislative battles who people run campaigns, bully campaigns, etc. Um, So it's a tricky But
1: Remember, one. they didn't say that there, the discrimination didn't happen, that that is supported by law. But, but, the, but what they are saying is that you also can't ignore religious freedom. And so there is a balance, I believe, and that's what we have to strike, is a balance where we all are able to cohabitate and and support each other in some format, right? And so I think that that's the important thing that we need to find is that balance.
2: Yes, the balance at the expense of, <laughs> you know, who's comp, but it, I, I, t- to your point, the next bully commissioner is going to have a really hard time navigating this. And it's going to take, uh, it's going to take someone uh, who's willing to kind of step into the fray. And I appreciate your, your expressing your thoughts on it, because um, no matter, just similar to your position on vaccines to the Student Success Act, someone's going to be mad at you. And you have to be willing to kind of stand in the center and and take the, the criticism. So uh we, we've probably explored this as much as we as much as we can on a pod. Uh but thank you for, for engaging in it. Um Alex, we probably yeah. have time for maybe one or two. Yes. yeah I
0: think I think I'll I'll just do the last question, Ben, and then I can wrap this up. Uh and speaking of being in the arena, so uh one really interesting thing which you had mentioned earlier is that bully, and actually I think this is right for at least statewide elected, is that bully is the only statewide elected uh, office that people vote on that is uh, nonpartisan. Uh, obviously, we, you know, uh, think that it will be you uh, come come to the ballot versus someone else uh, uh, come come this November. I did want to ask though, because again, there the person who you will go against will almost certainly be a Democrat. Uh, you are a Republican, but neither of you will have an RD uh, or on, on the side of your name like any other race. Uh, I'm curious of how you think that changes the dynamics of the race. Uh, And partially, I think that, you know, it makes people a little bit more open to voting for one side or another, just because they don't see the R or the D, but also I think it allows, you know, different candidates to kind of posture themselves a little bit differently as well, right, because maybe you're not so necessary. obviously, you have to work with groups on the right and the left, but you're not sort of like that, that label's not there, right? And I think that that does mean something, uh, obviously, to voters, but then kind of to you as well on the ballot. So, uh, curious of how you think that's going to impact your race.
1: Um, being nonpartisan, yes. Um, I don't. I don't really know. This is sort of uncharted territory for me, running for a statewide race that's nonpartisan. Um, but I think that I hope that it brings people to the table more. And one of the things that I think this is how I guess I'll answer this. One of the things that I think is the least um, a the least, mm, I don't know how to say this well, is the, maybe we could start that one over. Um, One of the things that does our our communities the biggest disservice is when we look at people as red or blue. Um, And so I think that we come with stereotypes and we assume that people feel a certain way and that a lot of times doesn't allow people to look at the candidate themselves and allow them to look at their experience a lot of times it would be much more important to look at their experience and look at their heart and look at what they do for their communities versus if they're red or blue and you know we used to see a lot of people cross ballot voting but now there's many, many more straight tickets. And I'm hopeful that people will look at me for who I am and not look at me in a way that they think I am. Um, but rather look at my qualifications, look at the extensive experience I have, um, look at the public servant heart that I have to really do this job in a way that serves, our entire state well and take an agency back to serving us well instead of being backlogged. And so that's what I hope we get out of the nonpartisan race. Um, If that happens, I will tell you in November um, (laughs) because I just, I don't know. And I'm hoping um, that I do make it to November. So um, Hopefully, this is on Wednesday, so you all will know, but at this point, I have no idea. I'm just working hard and campaigning hard and trying to meet people all across the state to make sure that they know that I value them and I value their opinions and I want to hear about their economy and their concerns and what their jobs are that they need and how they feel I can serve them best. And I've been to every corner of the state from the top to the bottom. To the ocean, to the desert, um, and really just trying to meet with people, and I think that that's really important. And I love that part of this.
2: One quick one before you close, Alex, that I um, am actually really curious about: Should Bully be elected, or should Bully? Do you do you agree that that you like the current having it be the only elected state agency? Um, I'm seeing you shaking your head. So my my follow up, and then I'll let you expound expound on it. I feel like. The bully commissioner position is severely underpaid. I think it makes like mid seventy thousands or something like that. Um, so, a, I'm not sure how you're financially able to to make that work with um, a family and a business and all that. But, um, I've I've been thinking about this as someone running for the legislature. Like, should that position either be paid more or be in, be situated differently in state government? So, um, curious if you have thoughts on either compensation or elected status of bully.
1: Um, I think $77,000 is a lot of money. Um, so I, I would be honored to take that money and be able to, you know, have multiple locations where I live, um, because that's what it would require for me, at least in the beginning, um, because the offices are all on the other side of the I-5 corridor. Um, and so that is one interesting thing to look at is, Why do we only have bully offices on one side of the Cascades? Um, So that's, I think, important. Um, And two, I think it has to be elected because of the reasons that I stated earlier with the state legislature and how, you know, I, I don't know how you feel, Ben, but I was shocked and appalled at some of the things that I saw and heard inside of the Capitol. and. I can tell you that it would never be tolerated in my business ever under any circumstances. And I cannot believe that we live in a state where we are allowing that to happen and the bully commissioner needs to be an independent person and an independent voice to make that change because nobody else can make that change and hold the legislature accountable unless they're from another statewide agency. There's other statewide agency heads that are elected. This is the only one on that ballot though. This is um, the treasurer is as well, Secretary of State. Um, so there are a couple others, but this is more of an agency, I would say, than the others.
2: I actually, I do agree with you. I think you make a really compelling case. Um, I just think the 77,000 number, while it is a lot, it is like, less than half as much. It's like a third as much as some of our other state agency heads. And it's just such an important agency, like civil rights and and employment is a big deal. Um, So anyway, uh, I will just say before Alex closes, thank you for running and thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, And Alex, do you want to give the final word? Well, Ben, the final
0: word, which you had forgot originally was, uh, Sherry, thank you again for coming on, but where can people find you? Where can they follow your campaign if they want to volunteer, if they want to donate, or if they want to learn more about you? Uh, Where can they go to do that?
1: Oh, shameless plug. I love these. Um, Sherryhelp.com is my website and you can find everything there.
0: Great. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast and we will see you in the next one.
1: Thank you both for having me.